Welcome to episode three of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that can and should be shared with our children. This week, I will tell you the story of Joan of Arc, not only the most famous woman, but likely the most famous person to come out of the period we call the Middle Ages. Before we get into her story, I have a request. If you like the concept of this podcast and what you're hearing so far in these first few episodes, please rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't have a marketing budget, so the only way more people will become aware of this podcast is through you. Joan of Arc was born in 1412 in the middle of a very dangerous period of European history called the 100 Years War, principally between England and France. At the time of her birth, there was a dispute over the succession of the French crown. And by the time she was a teenager, uh, the principals involved were an English king by the name of Henry VI, and a French prince called a dauphin, Charles, would later be Charles VII. The English king, Henry, asserted that he was the rightful king of France, and Charles asserted the same. And uh, at the time, if anyone had been betting on the outcome, most would probably have put their money on the English king. The English had had a solid string of victories over the previous generation. They'd gained French allies, in particular Duke Philip of Burgundy. And the Dauphin Charles was something of an outcast uh, who clung to a relative handful of loyalist strongholds uh, and had been kicked out of the core lands of what used to constitute his parents' kingdom. Who was Joan? Joan was, well, nobody. She was a peasant girl, daughter of a tenant farmer, not even literate. She grew up on the frontier between the factions you can imagine growing up in a time of war uh, and being right on the frontier where the war was being fought meant that it was it was very real. This was not some distant thing. When we think of war today, you think of watching something on TV or maybe hearing stories of people who have come back. But for a common person then, war was very immediate. Her own village was burned down at one point, uh, her home. She, uh, she saw it firsthand even as a child, and so perhaps it's unsurprising that she wanted to get involved. But how could a nobody peasant girl become involved in a great dynastic struggle between powerful kings and lords. Well, if you'd asked her, 
she would have told you that she received a visitation from from saints, St. Michael, St. Catherine of Alexandria, St. Margaret of Antioch, and that they delivered a message from God, delivered a mission for her to save France and see the French king crowned. She was told that it was her mission to do this. And however unlikely that may seem, she believed it. And she set out at the tender age of 17 to travel to the nearest stronghold of the Dauphin and tell the captain there that she'd had a vision from God and needed to see the king for the sake of the future of the kingdom. Now, as you might imagine, the guard captain there, Robert de Badricourt, reacted with some skepticism. As you might expect, even then, a teenager claim to be inspired by God to save the king was not something you heard every day. And so he initially told her to go away. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your concern, little girl, but we've got this. Uh, go back home. And she did, but she came back a few months later, and this time she quietly built up support um, among the people in town around the outpost, and through her quiet firmness and her piety, she won over the respect of many uh, of the people nearby, including eventually the captain, who uh, I don't know if he was truly convinced in her claims or, or if he just respected her persistence, her repeated respectful requests to see the king until he finally decided that she was not a witch and she wasn't feeble-minded, and maybe, just maybe, there was something to her claims. So he tasked six men-at-arms to escort her to Chinan to see the Dauphin. When she arrived there, uh, which was where the French prince Charles was holding his court at the time, he was skeptical at first. In fact, he refused to receive her for two days. And when he did agree to see her, he came up with a test. He would hide in plain clothes among his courtiers uh, and see if she was able to figure out that it was him. According to um, the stories we have from the time, she did. She identified him almost immediately, despite his plain clothes. And that impressed him enough that he took her somewhat seriously. Not immediately, but he had his cleric advisors examine her and try to test her claims of divine inspiration. She told the clerics the story that she told the captain that she'd received a, a visitation from saints, from angels, 
and that she was on a mission from God to see the French king crowned. That God wanted the French king to uh, sit on the throne and that she could make it happen if only they would send her with a French army to the city of Orleans, which was then under siege by the English, and that she would prove her divine connection by relieving that siege, which had been going on for several months. Eventually, Charles decided to send her to Orleans with his army. Why would he do that? To modern ears, it seems utterly insane that you would accept these claims from a teenager to divine inspiration. Suggestion that a teen should be sent with your army as a leader of your army, despite a lack of military experience. But you have to remember, at the time, people really believed in miracles in a much more literal and immediate sense than most people do today. People thought that miracles were happening in the world all around them. And so it wouldn't have seemed as absurd as it might to many modern people. And you also have to consider that Charles was in a desperate situation. He was losing. He really had nothing to lose at that point. And so you can see how he and his advisors might think, well, why not give this girl a chance to prove herself? She was telling him very flattering things. She was telling him that he was meant to be the king, that God wanted him to be the king. And even if he didn't quite believe it himself, and I don't know if he did, he may well have believed it because he would have certainly wanted to believe it. But even if he didn't, he could have calculated that the common people might believe it. You have this hero who rose up from the peasantry proclaiming his kinghood, that that could only serve his interests. And who knows? Maybe, just maybe, she'd be able to do what she said. So he did send her to Orleans. Orleans, by the way, is the uh, French city uh, that New Orleans in the United States is named after. Of course, New Orleans didn't exist at this time. Old Orleans, just Orleans, had been besieged by the English since October 12th of eight. Uh, 1428. Joan arrived April 29th, 1429. And her major impact was to urge the French commanders there to go on the offensive. They had been on the defense for quite some time, and she insisted the only way to win was to sortie out and attack the English in their strongholds to drive them away. Now, the French overall commander resisted at first, insisting that additional reinforcements were needed, but many of his subordinate commanders listened to her, believing that she was divinely inspired and so accepting her advice as coming from God. On May 4th, 1429, 
And the stories say she suddenly sprang up and declared to her attendants that she must go attack the English. She hurried to a fort east of the city where an engagement was already taking place. At the time, the French advance was faltering, but her arrival inspired the French soldiers to take heart and drive forward, which they did, and they took the English stronghold. And then another attack happened on May 6th, where she was again present, and they took another fort. Then on May 7th, they attacked further. Joan was wounded in the attack, but she exhorted them and called on them to to keep fighting and keep attacking until the English capitulated. And whatever else you might think about her, whether she was divinely inspired or not, it's clear that she inspired the men around her and that they did fight harder because of her. You can imagine what an inspirational figure she would be if you were a foot soldier in the French army and you see this young woman on a horse charging into battle, putting herself in danger, calling on you to fight. Uh, It would be pretty hard to turn your back on that. If, uh, If she was willing to put herself in harm's way, you can see the young soldiers thinking, how can I do any less? And whatever was going on in their heads, it worked. And the English retreated on May 8th, uh, just over a week after Joan had arrived. So here, this siege had been going on since October. She arrived at the end of April. And in just over a week, she had done what she said she was going to do and driven the English from the field, relieved the city of Orleans. As you can imagine, this made her famous and extremely popular among the soldiers and among the common people. So famous and so popular that many of Charles' other advisors started to resent her and to resist her urgings to drive forward and stay on the offensive. And they had some success. They slowed the advance of Charles' forces with this constant tug of war between Joan urging the attack and the other advisors urging caution. But this resistance only added to Joan's fame because uh, step by step, as they attacked and took a series of town, she just kept winning. She kept inspiring victory. Every time she drove forward against the advice of the uh, more cautious king's advisors, she was proved right again and again. Important people came to swear fidelity to her, powerful officials, She took down a major castle where the English had retreated. And when I say she, I mean that she was with and inspiring and advising the forces that took it down. Even though she wasn't leading in a strictly military sense, she was the driving force 
behind the offensive, the voice that kept pushing it forward. And she was always there at the front with the men taking the risks to urge them on. The French and the English army came head to head at a place called Pate on June 18, 1429. Joan promised success for the French, which would have seemed unlikely at the time after a generation of English victories. Most major clashes between large forces of the French and the English had ended in English victory for quite a while. Yet at Pate, once again, the French won a complete victory and shattered the English army's reputation of invincibility. And Joan urged that they press on even further, attack Paris, but and then the other officials were cautious. Joan finally persuaded King Charles to go swiftly to the French town of Reims to be coronated as king. Up until this point, he hadn't been crowned because uh, he didn't have access to the historical location where French kings were crowned, and they felt it important for the symbolism at the time that he'd be crowned in the right place. And it wasn't until after this series of victories that they took the town and could hold the coronation. And so finally, Charles was coronated as King Charles VII of France, and Joan was there. All of the portraits of the event show her standing near the king. And you can imagine what an inspiration this must have been for common people everywhere at the time, that one of their own was there with the king at his coronation. Not only with the king, but if the stories were true, that she was the one who had secured his crown. Still, the king's counselors had their revenge in the end. They continued to oppose swift action and negotiated a truce with the Duke of Burgundy, the French duke who was allied with the English and who still held much of France, including Paris. And that gave him time to entrench his position. Eventually, King Charles' forces attacked Paris, but by then it was well defended and well entrenched. Joan was there. She stood on the work earthworks. She was wounded again, exhorting the troops to action, calling on the Parisians to surrender to the true king of France. But <clears throat> despite all she could do, that assault faltered. And while she urged Charles to keep up the momentum, his council ordered a retreat. And after that, the army demoralized, largely disbanded. And while Joan continued to fight with a few men, her efforts faltered for a lack of supplies. By now, many of the king's advisors had moved from cautiously resisting Joan to openly opposing her. And thus it was that when the Duke of Burgundy attacked Compiègne, it was only Joan, her brother, her squire, and a handful of men-at-arms who went to defend the citizens, who she felt honor-bound to defend, as she had called on them to declare for Charles the Seventh, which she had done, which they had done. 
largely at her urging. On May 23rd, 1430, she led a sortie and twice repelled the Burgundian attackers. I can visualize this, this teenage girl on the force leading men into battle against hardened opponents. But as inspirational as it was this time, uh, her men were just too badly outnumbered. They were eventually outflanked by English reinforcements and compelled to retreat. She could have escaped if she had uh, gone with the van, the, uh, the horsemen at the head of the English column, but instead she elected to stay with the rear guard, uh, with the last of the men to protect the escape of everyone else across the river. And it was there, uh, at the rear of the English column, fighting this uh, action to hold off the English so that her men could escape, and that she was overtaken, dragged to the ground, and pulled off her horse by an English soldier. She was held prisoner by the forces of the Duke of Burgundy, in a number of castles, she made several escape attempts, including one where she jumped from the top of a castle and somehow survived the fall, further fueling legends of her divine connection. But she did not escape, and eventually uh, she was sold by the Burgundians to the English and a group of uh, clerics loyal to the English crown, and put her on trial for heresy. By all accounts, she performed well at the trials, thwarting the Inquisitor's attempt to trip her up with the complicated dogma of the time. She did so well that the Inquisitors eventually closed the trial to the public and questioned her in secret, uh, releasing only the information that they chose. Pretty much any time in history when... Some group of people have wanted to hold a trial in secret. It's because they were perpetrating some great injustice and didn't want the world to see. And that was certainly what happened here. It's impossible to say what exactly came out in these secret interrogations, but the result was never in doubt. She was found guilty of heresy and sentenced to death. At the time, the way a death sentence was carried out was to be burned on the stake, and 1431, at the age of 19, the sentence was carried out. She asked a Dominican friar who consoled her to hold a crucifix high for her to see as she she burned, and to shout the assurances of salvation so loudly that she could hear over the flames. In one sense, it's a tragic end, true an extraordinary life. But in another sense, it wasn't the end. And what she inspired makes her story a hopeful one, despite the violence of her death. 
Her sentence was annulled in 1456 after an investigation ordered by the Pope. And she was actually canonized a saint many centuries later in 1920. She aroused a legacy of belief by the French in their nation. Prior to that, the Hundred Years' War had been just a struggle between two kings. She turned it into a struggle for national liberation. And in so doing, probably more than any other single individual, created the concept of France as a nation in the eyes of the people. Her example of claiming a direct relationship with God whether you believe it or not, created an example for the people of bypassing the clergy, of bypassing the men in robes, interpreting God's word for you, and was one of the first examples to really hit the public consciousness of the time of someone claiming you could talk to God yourself. And of course, it was only a few years after that that the Protestant Reformation took place, which was largely about clerics like Martin Luther claiming that you could have a direct relationship with God, that you didn't have to, and perhaps even you shouldn't have to, go through a priest to get to God. And of course, she provided an example of courage for all people, really, but especially for women. I don't think anyone, after hearing the story of Joan of Arc, can have any doubt that a woman is capable of being as brave as a man. And that example, coming down through the culture of Europe and then the United States, perhaps that is one of the reasons why it is Europe and its former colonies where the notion of women's rights and women's liberation first really came to fore. If anyone ever tells you that individuals don't matter in history, think of the story of this peasant girl from the Middle Ages who inspired a nation and whose deeds still affect the world we live in today. And that's Joan of Arc.